Well, good morning again. I guess I would like to start the morning with uh, special birthday wishes for my sweet sister-in-law, Sherry. Happy birthday. She's been a very important part of my life. I've known her since. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell, but she did, so that's, that's okay. But again, she's, she's been a very important part of my life, uh, and I've known her as long as I've, well, almost as long as I've known my bride. But I'd like to start this morning with a moment of prayer. Lord, just thank you. Thank you, God, for the opportunity to be here today in your house and with your, with your servants here, Lord. Uh, let the words that I can share today come from the bottom of my heart and be guided by you, your Holy Spirit, Lord. Uh, you've worked wonders in my life, uh, throughout my life, and I'm so appreciative and wouldn't be here today if it, if it weren't for you, Lord. And so I just uh, hopefully... Help me get through this day and share my message to the people and let it be a word of encouragement to others. I ask all this in your son's name. Amen. So I need to, I, I, as I thought through how I, I wanted to share my message, and this all came up whenever Pastor was doing his series on, on pruning, and, and it was... It was a really powerful message for me, and, and I thought often throughout his uh, series how many times that you know, I was led, led by the Holy Spirit and pruned and so forth, and, and how important those things are in our lives. And then I, uh, I prayed a lot about how to deliver my message, and, and one thing that, that was clear uh, and it came through the Holy Spirit to me was that there were a lot of stories in my life that would help kind of develop uh, what happened to me, and, and uh, I wanted to be able to share some of that. Uh, so I'll start basically with some history and background of myself and my personal life, and then some stories uh, that are maybe shocking. Um, uh, there are personal stories that I think that... Uh, Probably, in some cases, nobody's ever heard before. So uh, I grew up in a very loving and stable family, and, and we went to church on a regular basis. We were members of St. Mary's Byzantine Catholic Church, and, and my parents, uh, you know, all their life had gone to church, and, and, and we went as, as, uh, as children with them. And we spent a lot of time, family time together, uh, with immediate and close family, especially during the holidays. Uh, we had regular meals together as a family, which doesn't always happen today. And then I, I have to say I was never verbally or, or physically abused by my parents. I mean, it was, a, it, was a good, it was a good raising. I attended catechism throughout my uh, childhood, and that was the Byzantine Catholic version of Bible school, so, uh, but we went and Bob, Bob uh, Goulish is, is another one of our fellow attendees from the same church, but we, we went to uh, catechism there and we had pastor or our priest at the time, he taught us how to, how to have mass every, every, every Saturday morning. So I served as an altar boy from second grade until I graduated from high school. Our family, we always, my dad was uh, the sole breadwinner, but we always had you know, good clothes to, to wear and we had uh, plenty, to, plenty to eat on the table even though he didn't make a lot of money. And I got to spend a lot of time with my dad and my brother doing a lot of outdoor things, hunting and fishing and going to camp. And, and I feel like I always got along well with my brother and my two sisters and I had, uh, Decent grades through school. I wasn't, I wasn't the dean's list, but I I made on a roll on a regular basis. So, um, you know, there was you know nothing, you know, outwardly apparent in my early life that would be alarming to the to the, as you look back at my life, nothing there that would uh, be alarming to the average person. But sometimes there's more than meets the eye. So I do have some short stories that I wanted to share and uh, stories that might help explain uh, the basis of uh, many of my addictions. 
The stories that uh, I share, again, they're, they're true stories, and uh, I, don't, I don't believe anybody has ever heard these stories or maybe hardly ever, maybe my wife might have heard part of one or something. But So uh, the first little story I have is called The Ditch, but uh, when we were... When we were young, my brother and I would, uh, every Sunday it was a routine, we would go to the sportsman's club with my dad and, my, and his uncle. And we would go to the club and we'd be outside running all over the hundreds or acres or whatever or around and thank God we never got killed doing some of the stupid things we did. And in the meantime, the guys were all inside hanging out not really at the bar, but they would uh, sit at a nice table in the back because there was a whole group that gathered and they were all former military guys and friends from, from uh, in many cases, from the Punxsutawney area or other relatives, but they, they, loved, those, uh, they loved those little brown beers. And, and at that time, Iron City made a little steiny bottle and that was their drink of choice. I mean, if you didn't drink Iron City beer, out of that little stein, you probably weren't at the table with those guys. But one day when we were leaving the club after, after the uh, events throughout the day, we were on the way up the hill and my dad, uh, we always took Uncle George's car and uh, my dad always drove and Uncle George was a little older but my dad always was the driver and as we were going up the hill from the club, my dad made a little bit of a wide turn around the around the curb, and and the car kind of went in a ditch, you know. So, yeah, you know, those guys were like kind of laughing, and it, we we thought it was hilarious in the back seat, my brother and I. But we just couldn't get out of the ditch, so had to go back down. Fortunately, we got a guy from another one of those patrons that were uh, enjoying a few, and he came out with a truck and a chain, pulled us out of the ditch. And, and we, we then made it home fine from there, but that was what I always called my first uh, learning lesson, lesson learning, num learning lesson number one in, in my life. <clears throat> so my dad uh, came from a family of coal miners and, and that Punxsutawney area, and I don't know, back in those days, uh, it seemed like you chewed snuff, you drank beer, and occasional shot of whiskey. And so my dad, he, he, uh, he wasn't a smoker, but he did chew Copenhagen. And so when I was 11 years old, I, I thought, well, it was time to, you know, give it a try, you know. And uh, I asked my dad, I said, can I have a, a chew of that Copenhagen? And he said, well, he said, there's, there's cans of Copenhagen in the fridge. He said, if you want one, get one out and go out on the back porch. He said, you'll probably put it in. You either get sick or he says, you'll like it and you'll probably chew the rest of your life. So I go out on the back porch with a can of Copenhagen and my brother came out because he's a year older, but he had to see what was going on. He couldn't wait. Well, I put the chew in and, and you know, I don't know, it was probably in there for about 15, 20 minutes. My brother kept asking me, how's it feel? How's it feel? And I kept saying, it feels all right, you know, I was okay, you know. So after that was done, that was it. I was kind of like hooked, you know, from then on. My, and my dad bought the cans of snuff, so. But again, it was being touted at the time, that this was back in the late 60s, touted as the safe alternative. You know, cigarettes were the bad thing. You know, uh, chew tobacco was the safe way to enjoy tobacco without, without having cigarettes, so anyhow. Thus was the start of a 30-year addiction, and that was life learning lesson number two. So this next story, uh, I'm glad the children are gone, but uh, this is a real-life experience, and, and I was 12 years old at the time, and, and uh, my brother and I both, we would spend a lot of time with uh, uh, an aunt and uncle, and there was uh, one weekend I was by myself at, at, at the aunt's house, and Uncle was out and had, it was almost like a little mini farm. He had plenty of garden and things to do outside, so he was always busy. And I was kind of in a house with, with my aunt, and um, at some point she asked if I wanted, wanted a beer, and I was like, yeah, heck yeah, I'm 12 years old, give me a beer, you know. So I, I had a beer, and then I had a second beer, and then 
And then at, after that, then, then she taught me how to, how to drink like a little bit of Canadian club was their drink of choice and Iron City beer regular. She taught me how to take like a half a shot of whiskey and then chase it down with the beer. So, you know, I, I had quite a few that day. And, and you know what? The crazy part was like era, we were drinking shots and beers and I'm 12 and, and I, I didn't like, I didn't really get loaded. I remembered everything that was going on and she kind of got, she got in over her head and she had actually had to go lay down for a couple hours before she could take me home that day. But I guess the point was it, was, it was learning moment number three for me. And there I was, 12 years old. So my, my uncle, he was a professional gambler and, and he, was a, he was a bookie. And my brother and I, as I said, we spent countless weekends and through the summer we would spend weeks on end at their house. And we were always, you know, helping him in the garden, cutting grass, pruning trees, pulling weeds. Learned a lot from him. It was, it was, we enjoyed it. We had a great time. Got to drive the tractor. There we were, you know, young kids driving tractors around enjoying life. But uh, one of the things that happened was I learned a lot about gambling at the time. Like he, he was a bookie, so uh, we always had to have sports of some sort was on TV whenever he was home. And, and then when the news came on, you know, I mean, we, they, they, they taught us how to be there with pencils and paper so we could write all of the scores down from all the different games and everything. And then, and then the other thing that we were able to do, my brother and I, we had to, one of the chores was at the end of the day, we would get to ride the tractor all the way to the end of the property, and we would take these special papers that had to get burnt every day down to the burning barrel, and we would burn those papers. So uh, early on, you know, I, I saw nobody in my immediate family had anything in the way of, of uh, things like, like this aunt and uncle, they had tons of stuff. And so I was convinced early on that gambling was the way to make lots of money. So to me, that was learning moment number four. So the next event happened uh, after another one of those Sunday excursions at the sportsman's we were on our way home, and it was uh, one of those extra late nights. Like once in a while, the guys would really, you know, have they had a lot of th special things to celebrate. So it really was a late night. And when we were leaving, again, Uncle was uh, my dad's uncle was there, my brother and I, and I didn't know I didn't notice anything crazy, but my dad knew that he had weighed more than he should have had to drink. And so he was nervous enough about that, that we left the club and my aunt and uncle only lived about a mile from, from the club. So he stopped at their house and he talked to my aunt and said, you know, I really don't think I should drive home. And so he made that responsible decision to have my aunt take us home. And she drove us home from there. And then my mom had to then take Aunt Patty back home and all that stuff. But it was, uh, I'm sure, a very embarrassing time of my dad's life, but uh, it was one of those things that we, you know, we never talked about as a family. I mean, it happened, we got home, everything was safe, but uh, uh, never, nobody ever brought that up again, but I, I remembered it the rest of my life, and that was a learning moment number five. So the next story is, uh, I call it my, the fishing trip. So my brother and I, uh, I was 16, my brother was 17, and we had a, a, a close family friend that was, was an adult, but he loved to hunt and fish, and, and he hung out with my dad and his buddies, but he took us, he took us one, uh, one weekend, we went up to Erie, we were going to go up to fish, I'd never fished at Erie before, so it was like a great opportunity, so we left we left on a Friday evening and we made a pit stop in, uh, in Edinburgh. It turned out that he had gone to Edinburgh College and, and uh, he, the place where, where we stopped uh, inside was a bar and there was dancing. And so my brother and I, we just kind of hung out in the car uh, for the next several hours. And, and this friend was uh, inside visiting with his friends, but we, 
he, he was kind enough to leave us with a cooler with beer so that we could like, you know, keep ourselves occupied. So we sat there and we're drinking beers, you know, for, hour, for a couple hours there while he was enjoying himself. But he would come out every half hour, 45 minutes, just to check on us, make sure we were okay. And, uh, and we were, and we had a great time, but, uh, you know, that was uh, a long weekend, and, uh, and there wasn't any more drinking after that. We fished, and, and, and I got to eat lots of food because the next day I was famished after a bunch of beers that I shouldn't have had that young. But again, it was, it was uh, learning moment number six for me. So my next little story is, is called The Silver Dollar, and it's called The Silver Dollar because that was the name of a bar that was in, in Sykesville. So we were, I was 17, brother was 18, and we were spending a weekend with, with my uncle at his camp up near Mahaffey. So we were out riding around one day, and, and so uncle thought it was, it was a good idea to stop in the bar and have a couple, a couple drinks. And so my brother and I, we was like, well, you know, we might have snuck one here and there, but we never were in a public place and had a drink. And, and so uncle said, just walk into place like you own it, sit down and order an Iron City draft and, and drink it. So the three of us walked in sat down, we ordered our Iron City drafts, we had two or three beers, and we got up and left. It was like a great thing. Here I was, 17 years old, in a bar. Just learning moment number seven. So then uh, a couple years later, my brother had graduated from high school, and he was actually living in Rossiter, PA. He, was, he, he got a job right out of high school working in the coal mines. So I was missing, missing him, and my this good friend of the family from the Erie trip, he, he offered to, you know, let's, let's ride down and visit Jay, and, and uh, we went down to see him. So we, we got Jay on a Saturday morning, and, and uh, we headed to our camp up in Marionville just to hang out for the day, and then we were going to come back to Rossiter. So the friend was smart enough that he had a cooler, and we stopped and and, and got a, uh, a, a case of beer so we could have something to, to keep, quench our th thirst while we were sitting around up in Marionville. Again, I was 18. Then I remember, on, and we had a few beers at camp and enjoyed the outside, the outdoors, and then rode around through the forest. And then on the way back, you know, Marionville's about an hour away from Punxsy. We get back coming through the Punxsy area. It was later in the Later in the evening, by the time we got back, uh, the, the friend thought it would be a good idea to stop and, and have a few at one of the local establishments, so we did. And there were the three of us were sitting in there, you know, drinking beers and just enjoying life. I was 18 and brother was 19. Just uh, learning moment number eight. So then, uh, if I wasn't 18, I was close to it, senior prom. So uh, one of the, I, at that time, I, I, I didn't have, I was, I was going to uh, go on into uh, heating and air conditioning in my career. I wasn't going to college, so I had a, enough of credits in high school that I could only work a half a day, or go to school half a day, and then I could start working in the, in the afternoon, and I was working for for a heating and air conditioning place. And one of the guys I worked with knew that the prom was, was gonna be that evening. And so he said, hey, you want me to get you a bottle of booze for, you know, for the prom? And I was like, yeah, you know, that'd be great. You know? I sure wasn't gonna go and get one myself, but I had no idea what to get. So he said, he said you ought to try cherry vodka. He said, that, he said it, it, it's not hard to drink and, and people have a hard time smelling it. So. He got me a bottle, it was a fifth of cherry vodka. And before I left the house to even go pick up my, we were dating at the time, we weren't married, but I had, I had probably drank about over half, maybe close to three quarters of that bottle of vodka. So what, and that should have like put me out, you know, but I'm telling you, that was like, nobody even knew I was drinking and I don't think my wife even knew it, you know, and, and I went through the whole night and it was great, but it was just like, Learning moment number nine, and it was, you know, I was like invincible to booze or something, so I thought. So then uh, 
now we're out of school, and I can't remember. I, I think I was 19, but I could have still been 18, not positive. But Candace and I went to a wedding, a couple that we were friends with in school. Uh, they got married, and so we went to this wedding. And, of course, I wasn't 21 yet. I was only 18 or 19. can't remember for sure. But we went to the wedding, and at that time, you know, if you, you, know, if you looked big enough they didn't bother you at a wedding you know I look I probably looked like I was 21 but I wasn't but the evening started out with lots of beers and then uh, turned into fuzzy navels after that vodka and orange juice and then um, drank way too much that I shouldn't have and and then uh, we got in the car Candace and I and we we drove home and I drove and she said I drove perfect all the way from Hopewell right to her mom and dad's place up on North Walnut Street. We get out of the car and uh, we start walking down the road and I, I kept walking down the road and Candace is going to go up to the steps and she said, where are you going? And I said, I'm going home. And she said, what about the car? And I said, what car? And then <laughs> it was all downhill after that. Next thing you know, I'm I'm in their garden falling over, and then you know, I had to make a grand appearance in the house, and her mom, uh, her mom woke up, and I don't know if her dad ever came out or not, but Sherry was there. She got to witness the whole thing, one of my prized moments of life, and uh, I was in really bad shape, and I was going downhill fast, and, and her mom kept saying, you know, you need, she's making this black coffee. You got to drink black coffee. That'll sober you up, and Sherry kept telling her mom, don't, mom. Don't give him black coffee, he's just gonna get sick. And then sure enough, you know, pounding that black coffee. Next thing you know, I'm hugging the commode and everything else. So that was, uh, that was my learning moment number 10. So my brother and I, we got to spend, again, lots of time with my dad. And, and not just at the sportsman's, but we would go, he, you know, whatever clubs he was going to, he would take us along. You know, like everybody used to make fun of him, you know, because he wasn't allowed to go anywhere without his, without his kids. And he said, hey, I take them kids with me because I want them to be with me, not because I, my wife makes me take them. But we got to spend all the time at the bars and 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 we got to be friends with his friends and we got to also learn a lot about you know small games of chance we watched all of this all the clubs had these punch boards and strip tickets and and we got to learn all about that stuff so it was only uh, it was only a matter of time you know until we turned 21 and then we could uh, do the same thing so you know that was uh, my learning lesson number 11 was how to hang out in the bars and how to how to gamble and, and do all of that small games of chance. <clears throat> so I talked earlier about uh, that chewing chewing the snuff thing. So I did that disgusting habit from the time I was 11 years old until I was 41. And when I was 41, it was uh, shortly after New Year's that year, and I just felt like, I felt the Holy Spirit was just telling me that I needed to stop this habit, you know. And, and so I'm like always trying to bargain, you know. I was the bargainer, you know. And so I, I like, I had just, I just put this, I put a chew in and I had this can of snuff. It was almost, it was almost brand new. It was still full, pretty full. And I'm like, okay, okay, Lord, you know what? Well, as soon as this can's over with, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll quit, you know, well, it's like, I felt like, you know, almost like he punched me, like, and so I, I, it was like, I felt, I felt something really strange, and I threw that can away, threw the snuff out, and I, I, that was it, I never, I never put a chew in again, I, I was 41 years old, after 30 years of that, I, and, and I quit, I quit chewing, cold turkey. So then it was about six months later in, in early July of 99, and I, I had a regular dental exam, and I went to the exam, and uh, the dentist, she was in Swickley at the time, and she, you know, I'd been going to her, and she said, you know, there's a spot in your lip that, that I really don't like the way it looks, and I'd like you to be checked. So she sent me to an oral surgeon up in Moon Township. 
So I went up and seen that guy, and, and he looked, and he said, you know, I want to take a little little sample of that. So he lopes a chunk out of my lip, you know, and then, uh, you know, he send it off to the lab. And so then a couple weeks later, we get results back from the lab, and, and it said that there were some precancerous cells in, in, in there, and, and then the doctor that did that original loping on my lip, he wanted to go and lope some more out, and then so I had some discussions with my regular dentist, and we just decided that she, you know, as long as I went on a regular basis and, and got checkups, she could keep an eye on it, and I didn't need to get any more of my lip loped out, so I elected not to do that, and uh, um, after 24 years, I'm still cancer-free from that episode, and I thank God, and uh, I, I credit the nudging of the Holy Spirit uh, to help get rid of that nasty uh, addiction and, and for possibly saving my life. So that was definitely definitely pruning, pruning moment number one in my life. So another addiction that I had going on during all those years of chewing the, the tobacco and after I turned 21 was... Uh, you know, I had learned all about the small games of chance, and I learned about uh, uh, like the three and four digit numbers. Those were my favorite. You know, I, I learned I, you know, I could I could go and play these numbers, and I don't know why, but I mean, my uncle was a bookie, so I understood the whole numbers game, and I should have known that only the bookies make out, not the people that were playing it. And so, therefore, only the state, once the state came around, only they were going to make out, not not somebody like me, but it didn't deter me from trying. So there were times when I would do some stupid things like spend as much as hundreds of dollars on, on numbers, only that night to watch the numbers come out and then be sick to my stomach because my number didn't come out. So as this was going on for years and years, I, I started to... Uh, couple that gambling with drinking, you know, and, and I already drank on a normal basis, but it was like the, the heavier the gambling got, the worse my drinking got, and it was like I, I was drinking a lot. There were many times my, I'd be at the club and my phone was ringing, you know, some family member wondering where I was, and uh, I wouldn't answer the phone because I didn't want to have to answer stupid questions that I thought were so stupid. But, uh, you know, my, my sponsor, Dee, who, who, God bless her, she came to see me today, but she always talks about how one of the things that we lose because of gambling is, is time, and, and that's so true. I mean, we, I lost time with my family that, that I can never make up because I was too selfish with the gambling and the drinking that went along with it. So I learned how to lie quite well so that I could cover my tracks. And then unbeknownst to my wife, uh, I was accumulating all these credit cards that kept showing up, you know, back in the mid nineties, you know, like these cards would just come magically, you know, boom, they show up. And then I had all these cards and I'm reading about them. And I learned that you could put this card into this little machine and it would spit out hundreds of dollars in your hand. Oh man! So I like I, I did that for I did that for quite a while till I had us so buried in debt that that my wife didn't even know about that we ended up having to declare bankruptcy and it was all my fault 100 percent and and that period was a really dark time of my life and it scared me made me sick to my stomach and then I swore that uh, after that I said that's it I'm done I'm not gambling anymore never do these stupid things again. And I was, at least three months, I probably was clean, and I never gambled. But then, guess what? Then I started thinking, you know what? I, you know, and, and it's, I know it's, it's Satan, man. He's in there. He's, he's whispering on your ear. He's, he's on your shoulder. And he's like, you know, just, just spend a couple bucks, you know. Just play, you know, play the cash five or play the million-dollar lottery, things that you can win big money on, not that little numbers, you know. And so... I thought that's a good idea, you know, so I did that, you know. So for a few weeks, I was playing just the big, the big things to win big money. 
I just wanted to hit it big, that I could, I could pay off all my debts and I could make everybody happy. But then it wasn't long and I was right back into the daily numbers, you know, and, you know, spending, spending more money and more drinking and worrying about finances. And, and, you know, and eventually I had an opportunity came along and, and it wasn't a godsend. It was, it was, it was like a, it was a devil sin. So the scrap dealer from work where I worked, uh, he, he started to pay me for, for, he started to pay me cash so that he could continue with our business. He wanted to make sure that he was the, the select scrap, scrap guy. So he figured if he had me under his wing, you know, with some, giving me some money, then, you know, that would guarantee him that we would continue to do business with him. So, you know, I was stealing money from the company. And now I had money. I, w I had a very responsible position with the steel plant where I worked. I was second in command. I knew what I was doing was wrong, but I was so addicted to, to, the, to the gambling and, and to, that, to that booze that I, I, I needed the money. And, and, and next thing that came, like the sleepless nights, you know, I, I can't tell you how many, I couldn't sleep. All this was going on. I was doing what I knew was wrong, and and I couldn't sleep. I, sometimes I would get up at two o'clock in the morning, and I would just go to work. You know, I could go in any time I wanted, but I figured I might as well try to do something useful. I couldn't. I couldn't sleep. So that uh, that would go. That would the end of the day would come after one of those bad nights, and I'd get out of work. Boom. Hit, Got to hit one of the clubs or bars before I would go home. Eight or nine beers later, I'd finally make it home. Sometimes it was a dozen, depending on how the day was. Then I'd get home, and then I had to, I had uh, one of those beer meisters in my garage. It was the best Miller Lite in the world, and and I would always be able to tackle six or eight more of those while I was cooking dinner or whatever. So I was consuming. A lot of uh, a lot of alcohol, and so then finally, my day of infamy came on Thursday, June 9th, two thousand eleven. So I had to go to corporate headquarters that day uh, with my boss and, uh, to meet with the VP of manufacturing about contract negotiations that we were just getting started with the steelworkers. So when I got to the VP's office. We said our hellos, and then he took me down the hall to a conference room where he introduced me to a couple of strangers. He said those fellows had a few questions for me, and then he proceeded to leave the room. And I started to get a bad feeling in my stomach. So, and it turned out that those uh, gentlemen in the conference room, they, they, were, uh, they worked for a private investigating company. And they started asking me questions about the interactions with this scrap man. So my first thoughts were that I could try to lie my way out of it. And then uh, based on the questions they were asking me, it became pretty obvious to me that they knew more about what was going on than I did. So I was sick to my stomach. I was pretty certain that I'd be going to jail before that day was over. That interrogation lasted for about three hours, and uh, the Holy Spirit just said, you know, you just need to get on with this and, and answer. And so I, I did. I, I just said, you know, I'm thinking, no sense in lying. I answered all their questions to the best of my ability. They, uh, they had all kind of information there and all kind of questions I never dreamt of asking, but they, they asked them, and I answered everything I could. So when, when they were done with me, they gathered all their stuff up and they left. And uh, a few moments later, the VP of manufacturing came back in along with the uh, vice president of human, human resources. And uh, the vice president of manufacturing said to me, you know, obviously you cannot continue to work for the company. And I told them I understood that. And he said to me, you know, he says, we could have you arrested. And I said, I understand that, too. And he said, we appreciate your past contributions. You've been with the company for 30, 33 years. And 
he just said, we're not going to get in between you and the rest of your life. And, and, but I was still ready to throw up whenever that was all done. So at that point, the VP walks me down to my car so that he could get my company keys and my uh, cell phone, company cell phone, and my computer. And uh, he wished me well, shook my hand, and then he went back to the office. So I sat in my car for a few minutes and tried to gather my thoughts. I, 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 you know, like I didn't know what, what I was gonna do now. I pretty much had my mind made up that if this day ever came, that I was just gonna end it all. I, I didn't know exactly what to do, and then I, so then I got a plan in my mind. I, 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 I just drove away from the office, and I got on, on the expressway, and I started heading toward Ohio, and I just had a plan that at some point I would get into Ohio, and I would just turn my car or my truck into an oncoming tractor trailer and just try to end it all. I figured that my family would be better off without me and, and there would be plenty of life insurance that would help pay off even if, even if they determined that, that what I did was a suicide. So I, I was at the bottom. I, w I was at total rock bottom, the bottom of my life. I was uh, well into Ohio and I, I actually was just waiting for the right opportunity. It was two-lane road, and I just thought when I saw the next tractor trailer, I was just going to do it. And then that's when I heard the Holy Spirit whispering in my ear that I needed to turn around. But on the other side of my head was Satan encouraging me to get on with it. You know, just do it. Get on with your plan. End it all. And finally, it was like a shot from God, and he said, Stop. I started crying. I asked the Lord how, how to do whatever I needed to do. And, and I heard him say that he would carry me through this. So I turned the car around and I headed for home. I didn't know what, what was going to become of anything, but I just knew I had to go home. So, but instead of going home to celebrate the 32nd wedding anniversary of my wife and I, I had to instead go home and tell my family what I had done. I had to tell them about all the lies that I had been telling them all, and I had to beg for forgiveness even though I didn't deserve it. I, I really expected Candace to leave me, and she was a wreck, and I knew it was all my fault, and I couldn't have blamed her if she would have. So the kids were coming over, of course, because it was our anniversary, and, and so I took the kids in to into the room one, one at a time, and I tried to explain what I had done, and I begged for their forgiveness. It was the most embarrassing time of my life, and I had no idea where the Lord was going to lead me, but I trusted him. <clears throat> so I was fortunate that my neighbor that lived right beside me had, had a couple, he had a, he had a business, and I didn't know what to do, but I just felt Everything I've done in my life from, from June 9th, 2011 on has been guided by the Holy Spirit without a doubt. God has led me 100% of the way, and, and trust me, for the next six months, he carried me because I couldn't even walk. But I went the next day to my neighbor, and I, I explained that I didn't tell him what all went down. I just told him I lost my job, and I really needed something, and, and so... I, I begged him if he could give me some work, and uh, you know he, he said that he would do what he could. So that was a Friday. So then on Saturday, my son, who was working for for the neighbor, he he uh, he had some things lined up at the shop for me to do. And then the next day, him and I did went and did some jobs. And so then I pretty much worked every day after that, and it was. Uh, I was 53 years old, and it was the hardest work that I had ever done in my life. It was landscaping work, and uh, I, I was suffering with pain every day. I mean, I, my back was so screwed up, I could hardly walk, but I didn't care. I felt like I deserved it. I felt like it was like my penance. I, 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 deserved, to, I deserved to be suffering. 
But I prayed constantly, and I did not know what my next steps were, but I really believed that the Lord was in control and he would carry me because I sure couldn't walk on my own. So I started uh, <clears throat> that Sunday, June 19th, after working. I was working every day then, no days off, and I didn't care. The more I worked, the more hours, the better, because then I didn't have to sit at home and... Uh, Think about all the stupid things that had gone on in my life. And then on Sunday, June 19th, it was Father's Day that year. And before I left for work that day, Candace told me that the kids would be coming over for dinner. Well, I didn't feel like much of a father at that point, but I wasn't in any, any position to argue about it. So we had dinner that evening at our home, and the kids gave me cards. And uh, when I opened a card from from Tara, there was another envelope inside the card, and, and she had written on the outside of that one, she said, read it when I'm alone. So after the kids went home that evening, I went to my quiet place, and I opened up that other envelope, and Tara had given me a letter, and inside she told me how much she loved me, and that I was the best father in the world, even though I, I didn't deserve that, and uh, and she was so proud of everything that I had done in my life, but also in that envelope was information about Gamblers Anonymous. Well, I read every every sentence that was in the information. There were pamphlets and you know pages and stuff. I read it all, and I saw that the next day there was a meeting that was going to be held in Beaver. They met every 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 Monday evening at seven o'clock, and I knew I needed to attend that. So Monday, June 20th, 2011, that was the date that I started attending Gammon on meetings, and I've been attending since. So I'm celebrating 12 years of sobriety from both drinking and gambling. And I tried on my own several times to quit over the years, and I never had any success. Through the grace of God and the fellow attendees at the GA meetings, I finally found a program that works. And I'll never say that, that I'm cured, but I continue to take one day at a time. Now, people hear me say all the time that I'm better than I deserve. And I didn't create that saying. In fact, I learned that from Dave Ramsey, who I listened to on, on my trips to work all the time. But I really liked that saying, and, and, and I, I kind of adopted it for my own because I truly am better than I deserve. It's only by God's grace and mercy that I was able to pull my life back together again. Every questionable step over the past 12 years has been prayed about by me, and the Lord has blessed me and taken me to higher places than I would have ever been in my life had I not crashed in 2011. I was pruned by the Holy Spirit of three terrible addictions. I still have other faults and other addictions. Eating is one of them. I continue to eat way more than I should, and it's an addiction. And so I'm continuing to pray that, that the Lord can help lead me to a better place. I just hope that someone out, out here you know, or who might be hearing this on a podcast or whatever can gain something positive from my story. I mean, this was my this was my life. Uh, I learned I learned some of these things early in my youth and early teens that that probably weren't very healthy. So we should all keep in mind that others are watching us and learning from us all the time. Sometimes it's youngsters. Sometimes it's teens. Sometimes it's young adults. Sometimes it's old adults, but we need to be careful of the examples that we provide. Uh, Jesus Christ died for us on the cross to pay for our sins. He didn't want me to sin, but when I did, and I begged him then for forgiveness, he took me in his hands and he carried me till, because I wasn't able to stand on my own. If it weren't for the love and grace bestowed on me by the Lord and Savior, I would not be here today. And I would not have been able to find a way to the rest of my life like they, like they told me that I could have. 
So that program, you know, the addiction, what is an addiction? Addiction is a chronic dysfunction of the brain system. It involves reward, motivation, and memory. It's about the way your body craves a substance or behavior, especially if it causes compulsive, obsessive pursuit of reward and a lack of concern over the consequences. You know, the early stages of addiction are experimentation, family history, particularly being drawn to an activity or substance, etc. <clears throat> then after the experimentation stage, then there's, uh, there's things like uh, personality or behavior changes, lack of interest in old hobbies that were good, you're starting neglecting the relationships, missing important obligations, risk-taking, ignoring negative consequences, distinct change in sleeping patterns, uh, increased secrecy, like lying about the amounts of the substance used or time spent. I mean, it was me, man, man. It was like, I read all this stuff and I was like, spot on. So addicted persons will tend to surround themselves with others who encourage their habits, and, and I believe that. And uh, when confronted, they may create excuses and try to justify their behavior to you. A lot of, uh, there's a lot of different emotional changes that happen when you're addicted. You become aggressive, irritable, depression, apathy, suicidal thoughts. Those are all things that happen, and they happen to me. And then the long-term consequences, you know, damage relationships, arrest or jail time, eviction, loss of jobs, you know, all of that, all that stuff was, it was me. So there's, you know, some of the ways you can support friends or family members in that recovery process. You can learn more about substance or behavior, uh, uh, dependency and the treatments. Stay involved and continue to offer ways out, meetings, uh, provide sober and, and trigger-free settings, and then speak up and express concern if, if, if you see some of those things that, that are, you know, problems that you know are, are going to lead somebody down the wrong path. So most importantly, we must remember that someone with an addiction, they have to be willing to make a change. The addicted person must be ready to surrender themselves to their higher power. There's a 12-step recovery program that GA uses, and, and almost every, every one of those kinds of programs all have that same 12-step recovery. I'm not going to go through all 12 steps, but, but uh, you know, number one, the first one is to admit that we're powerless over whatever addiction it is that we're that we've had and that our lives have become unmanageable. That was, that step one was, for me, uh, it, it, it was hard to get to that point, but after, after probably 35 or 40 years of playing stupid stuff, I, I finally got to that point. So, <clears throat> it, it's all about creating a, 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 a a better foundation in recovery. And in Matthew 7, 24, Jesus says, therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him unto a wise man which built his house upon a rock. And when the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat upon that house and it fell not for it was founded upon a rock. <clears throat> Matthew, uh, in 7, 24, 27, he speaks to everyone who is in recovery. At one time or another, we've all built our houses on sand. The sand could be alcohol, it might be money, drugs, sex, food, another person, gambling, anger, abuse, the list is endless. <clears throat> These are all substitutes for God and we let them slip through our hands like sand. None of the false gods mentioned will provide a firm foundation. Only God Almighty can provide a foundation that is unshakable. No matter how bad things get, God is always there. He never fails. He will hold you firmly in his grip if you will let him. As Paul said in Corinthians 3, verses 10 and 11, 
But each of you must be careful how you build, for God has already placed Jesus Christ as the one and only foundation, and no other foundation can be laid. Take care in building your foundations. They last a lifetime. Build them on the rock so you can withstand the storms of life. We pray with me. Lord God, I just thank you for saving me, Lord, from, from my past and all the destructive habits that I was in, Lord God, and just continue to help me go one day at a time and continue improving and working on my character defects, Lord, and just to help help anybody out there that might hear this message, help them be, find a way in, of encouragement to help help them get through whatever it is. And we ask all these things in, in your name, Jesus Christ. And, and I just will add also that if anybody ever wants to talk to me about any of this stuff or addictions, please feel free. I would uh, be more than happy to talk and share with you. Let's give him a hand. Huh? What a very moving story and testimony and uh, great transparency. Um, so uh, I just want to say, Frank, thank you very much for sharing the, what you shared. And just a couple quick takeaways. You cannot out God's grace. You cannot out God's grace. But to come to that realization, you have to understand the depth of your sin. And, um, and Frank did that. And, uh, and so he received the conviction of the Holy Spirit. He confessed the sin in his life. And he received the grace from God for the sin that was in his life. All of us in this room, in varying degrees and gradations, are on that spectrum somewhere. All of us. There isn't one person in this room that isn't as susceptible to something that Frank had, like what, what Frank had in his life. We just missed the opportunity, maybe. Most of us are not really virtuous. We're only virtuous because we lack the opportunity to do otherwise. So if you have some of those things going on in your life that Frank had going on in his life, just receive the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Let him speak. Confess to him, to someone that you love and trust. And then receive the grace of the Holy Spirit because it's there. It's just there. So after uh, I'm done praying, uh, I, I, Frank, if you want to just uh, make yourself available up here and anybody would like to share or talk with him, please feel free just even to come up and, and thank him for his story. That would be great. But during that time over here, we're going to have um, a, a short VBS meeting. All, the only people I need to see are Carol, Patty, Linda, and Nikki over here if we could. And then the ladies tea people are going to meet over here at these tables to do some uh, work, post work in terms of that. But uh, let me conclude our service in prayer. <clears throat>